Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hello, you're very welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Maurice O'Keefe. And in this interview from the Irish Life and Lore Archive is with Father Jim Good. He was born in 1924 in Cork City and he died in 2018. He became the first uh, cleric to publicly speak out against church and state against their rules and regulations that they set down for unmarried mothers. This is a very powerful interview. The interview starts with Father Jim Good explaining his appointment to UCC as Professor of Theology in 1968. It's a very complicated story. Alfred O'Reilly wanted a theology taught in UCC, but he felt it couldn't be done because the university, Irish National University, was supposed to be not based on any religion. So he thought up a scheme. The bishops appoint a professor of theology who wouldn't be paid, but the university would appoint a lecturer in philosophy who would be paid, and the one man would do the two jobs, (laughs) which is very clever, you see. It was a way around it, wasn't it? It was a way of getting around it, you see. In fact, it wasn't necessary because there was nothing to stop uh, theology of any kind being taught, Jewish or uh, Methodist or anything. But anyway, I came back uh, into disaster. Uh, Lucy had come in as Bishop of Cork, replacing Old Colin, and Atkins had come in replacing uh, Alfred O'Reilly, whose brainchild this thing was. And Lucy immediately said, if this chair of theology is to go, go ahead... I will appoint and fire, you see. Mm. And the university said, no, it's a university appointment and we appoint and fire. And I was caught in the middle. I had that written up incidentally in a simple article. And um, Lucy came to me and said, I, I'm not in agreement with this thing. You go ahead, you will be appointed professor, but you're not to give more than 12 lectures a year and it's not to develop into a normal professorship. The thing really fell apart. So I gave a few lectures here and there, but it never developed at all. And it was a great pity because it should have been possible, you know, to, to arrange them what bishops wanted. So the conditions eventually were that um, I would be appointed on a three-yearly basis by the university, university post, but renewable after three years which meant, you see, that the bishops could say they don't want this fellow. So I, I carried on for about 13 years. and a very happy ending, in a way. Uh, the university insisted that the bishops put down a nominal salary. 
200 pounds a year. They said a full salary from my philosophy. And uh, they put down this nominal salary of uh, 200 a year. Never paid, you see. But then Humanivita came along, if you want to, my feelings on that. I felt very strongly from the beginning that where it was necessary, a uh, married couple could limit their... Um, could limit their um, their family, yeah. and uh, you know I, I taught that in my medical ethics class. So I had medical ethics in UCC. In the aftermath of Humanivita, I knew that the bishops would uh, not recommend me again. You see, so before that could arise, I resigned. But uh, because you were outspoken in that, uh, I, well, I, I, I rejected Humanivita publicly the day it was promulgated, and I knew, you know. Uh, well, you were the only priest in Ireland to do this, and yet you got the courage. You you felt you you I had a matter to do of conscience. This. Actually, you know, I felt so certain about it, and I was aware that a lot of my fellow priests, particularly the, the theologians, uh, they felt the same. But you see, professors of theology I mean, would have no right of tenure against the bishop. They can be dismissed overnight. Whim of the bishops, and several of my friends now were professors in Manute. They got warnings: if you continue to say this, you will be dismissed. You know, yeah. and ordered to withdraw things. So I wouldn't blame them for not coming out in the open. They would be goners. But I knew I couldn't be touched as a university member. You see, yeah. the only yeah. control bishops or Bishop Lucy as an individual had over me was that um, he could not recommend my appointment as professor of theology. Mm-hmm. So he, he did that, but um, the way he did it, he sent me uh, a little note via the chaplain of the university saying that um, um, I got my note of resignation and I am now enclosing your salary as professor of theology. And the check and close was for Forty pounds, <laughs> thirteen <laughs> years' salary at two hundred. I remember I was very friendly with um, Brian Murphy, professor of law, and Brian said, "I'll demand that you get uh, other two thousand six hundred in cash, or a declaration that the professorship never existed." But it just died a natural just, death. Yes. And Professor Rickson did make a big effort later to resurrect the thing. The university, in fairness, never cancelled the professorship they were done. Professorship of theology, vacant. They left it vacant all vacant, the time. Yeah, all the time until it died. You know, they dropped then some years later. But in fairness to me, the university, you know, stood by me completely. But yeah. there was nothing they could have done about it. It was just a bad arrangement and that the hierarchy and the NUI had never really come to an agreement about legalising the situation, you know. Was it about that time that you got involved in adoptions as well? No, that came very early on. In fact, I thought it was rather unfair looking back. Uh, I came back from Innsbruck 1954 and uh, was appointed immediately the lectureship for which I had been sent to Innsbruck and began teaching philosophy. And, you know, it was a struggle getting lectures ready for the first time. It was a two-year course. And I got through the first year and gave my last lecture of the year, I always remember, the 15th of May. And uh, I looked at the Cork examiner that morning to see whether there any priestly appointments, because I knew they were due, you see. Thank God, no appointment. I have a good free summer now. And up to UCC, and a letter waiting for me at UCC. And, of course, Lucy always addressed him as doctor. You know, Dear Dr. Good, you will reside in the Lock Presbytery. Full stop. 
you will act as secretary to St Anne's, not to St Patrick's orphanage. There was an old orphanage which all owned a lot of money. And uh, you will act as secretary to St Anne's Adoption Society. I always remember this phrase, I didn't know what it meant. You will not be required to quest for the orphanage. I was to go around looking for money for the, the orphanage, you see. And uh, that was that. So so you got involved there, and, and your time there, or your time involved. Uh, uh, it, now, going back to to the, the, the 1950s, it, it, it was, in Ireland, you had, um, it was taboo if uh, a child was born out of wedlock. Totally. Totally, yeah. a and dreadful it, crime. Uh, what it created were these orphanages which uh, housed these children. Uh, originally, um, children who were homeless were committed to industrial schools. Now, that wasn't Lucy's interest. Uh, girls who were pregnant outside marriage were outcasts. Uh, 1922, the general picture was a girl who was pregnant outside of marriage was generally locked up in a county home for life. And 1922, um, apparently state and church got together and decided that girls who had their first baby were innocent children. They should be segregated, so they brought in sisters to homes in Vesperer, Cork, uh, Rostray, Tipperary and Castle Pollard. Yes, the general picture was that girls who had their first baby were regarded as innocents. A girl with a second illegitimate baby, she was a criminal and locked up. So... Three convents were set up in Ireland for first, let's call them first offenders, you see. And the idea was that they should be locked up safely for rehabilitation for two and a half years. And that was the picture. Now, the following step then was the mother was released at two and a half years and the child went to a junior orphanage from two and a half to ten. These were all over the country. Then at the age of 10, transferred to a senior uh, industrial school uh, and remained there 10 to 16. That was all government order. And then at 16, the girls went out and became maids and the boys went out and became farm labourers. That was the general picture. Now, the picture that Lucy was aware of, Lucy, you know, a lot of bad things are said about him. He was a difficult man, but he did some tremendous things which were never recognised. And one was, you would call him the founder of Irish adoption. Even before he became Bishop of Cork, he pushed for legal adoption. Now, at the time, Archbishop of Dublin blocked legal adoption coming into Ireland, came to England in 1926, and John Charles blocked it on the ground that if Protestant parents got hold of a Catholic child, which was fairly common in those days, you know, you heard the bird's nest and so on, uh, that if you brought in legal adoption, Protestant parents would get hold of a Catholic child child and legalise their ownership of it. And therefore John Charles uh, ganged up with the Attorney General of the time and blocked legal adoption. And Lucy took them on. And he he ganged up with a famous Pam Blacksmith who was TD for Cork. And Pa pushed an Adoption Act. And that's where you get the Adoption Act of 1952 in Ireland. Legal. Yes, and, and now at the time you had Archbishop uh, McQuaid. And yeah. Now, he, was he very um, uh, supportive of this? and, and, and was oh, Totally he, against he, it, totally against it. And he claimed at a later time that he and his henchman, Monsignor Cecil Barrett, went through the text of the Adoption Act line by line. 
to see that it was in keeping with Catholic teaching. And it was very restrictive, but generally it did give the basic principle that an adopted child, once the legal adoption was completed, the child was a child of the family as if it had been born of their marriage. That's the actual text. Now, Lucy not merely boosted that, but the moment he became bishop, he set up his own adoption society. St. Anne's Adoption Society, using all the funds from the old orphanage, which had now closed down, you see. The orphanage, the rules were they had to be legitimate city children, both parents dead. That thing just died out. There weren't such children. So Lucy's idea was there were thousands, literally, of Irish children being dumped in England. And from about 1900 onwards, the English bishops had been writing to the Irish bishops about this scandal, all the Irish girls heading for England, and uh, the Irish bishops just denied that any such thing happened. Imagine. So Lucy was fully aware of it. Mm. And 1954, Lucy wrote to all the English bishops and said, I will take responsibility for every Irish child that you cannot manage an adoption for. And he converted the buildings that had been the orphanage uh, and the, the British government were delighted and meant they were getting rid of so many Irish babies. I suppose I was the first to point out that the Irish government used to say at the time that there were 1,700 illegitimate births a year in Ireland. What, oh 1,700? Goodness, as many as that. Yeah, but I was able to prove in a very short time that the number having their babies in England was eight to 10,000. And they were just being dumped on the English diocese. And of course, this all came about because of the law, because the law stated that, uh, or not just the, but the embarrassment to the oh, family. dreadful, which is unheard of. I can remember now a student fired him a note in my time, and he never knew what was wrong with his sister had a baby. You know, outside of marriage, he was just fired. Oh, it was a total disgrace. Now, John Charles, to give him his due, did set up, he was instrumental in the three modern baby homes. Now, he didn't found them, but he pushed it very much and had an arrangement with the English bishops that he would take all uh, Irish girls who were prepared to come back to Ireland and stay two and a half years. And Lucy was aware, of course, the vast majority of girls, no go. They weren't going to come back and be locked up for two and a half years. And it meant literally that thousands of Irish babies were being sold in various locations and going to all kinds of nurseries and homes and being sold abroad and so on. And I say Lucy undertook to take every baby uh, of Irish origin that the English societies couldn't handle. So my, my involvement was I knew about adoption. I was interested. It had just started and I had friends who had no children. I said, would you not uh, think of adoption? And came along and I came with them and in a few weeks I got the appointment myself in charge. <laughs> I was secretary and I had uh, a lady, uh, just uh, she had been on a government commission where Lucy had met her and Mrs Francis Wren and we were the only two people actually working with the babies. And the babies came generally in twos from any English diocese. And the early days, they came via Innisfallen, which was a tough journey. London to Fishgar, maybe seven hours. Mm -hmm. Fishgar to Cork, 12 hours. And my job was to be at the boat to meet the two mothers with the babies. Drove them to the nursery. That, that, that must have been an emotional moment, you know, taking, taking the, the, the mother's babies. 
only partly to come back now to the, the dreadful fear of these mothers were scared they'd be seen and quite frankly in the early days particularly there was very little bonding between the mother and child they wanted to get rid of the baby as simple as that you know and the picture was I had to tell them we reached the nursery now in St Mary's of the Isle we had to tell them now you understand that you won't be seeing your baby again Mm. And there wasn't a great deal of emotion now in most cases. In fact, in many cases, there was none at all. Now, our arrangement was we had the nursery in the Mercy Nun, very good, full care, you know, 24 hours nursing. And we had about 14 babies normally in the nursery. And then Lucy started a mighty programme of advertising adoption. I thought it was a very nice tribute to me. I was living in the Lock Presbytery, and the day he came to preach, at confirmation, he preached on adoption. Tremendous, you know, begging me. These are homeless children, and whether you have children or not, could you find a place for a baby in your home? And he pushed very much for couples who had children, that it wasn't just a cure for childlessness, it was a question of children who would otherwise finish up almost certainly in an English orphanage. Can you recollect how many babies you were handling? I can give you the number, actually. About 12 years and 954 babies. In 12 years. <laughs> personally accepted into my hands, put into the nursery and then placed for adoption. It was tremendous work. Now, this Mrs. Wren uh, was a woman of good experience by profession. She was a domestic science instructress, but had been on a government commission on immigration with Lucy and worked full time and tremendous judgment. I I did what we would call the legal side, you see, getting the legal papers through and so on, and she did what we call the baby side, you know, uh, interviewing the mothers. Well, I would have met them personally as well, but she would do the actual interview and keep records and so on. And uh, the support from Lucy was unbelievable. If we could convince Lucy that there were, we had a grievance with the Government Adoption Board, I always remember the first time I brought this up to and convinced them the Adoption Board were dragging their feet mm-hmm. and let the adoptions drag on, you see, mm-hmm. unnecessarily long. Now, you see, until the day, until the hour of legal adoption, adoptive parents had no right to a baby. And the mother could just say, sorry, I want my baby back. And she had to get it, you know. I had nine experiences now of reclaiming a baby from adopting parents, and it was a frightening experience. Yeah, because at that stage, you, oh, the, the, you know, you were fighting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because both parents are both uh, adopters, adopters uh, were, were involved. Were involved. I yes. remember one dreadful case. Now the baby was placed at three months, and nine months later to the day, uh, the mother reclaimed, and I remember driving out in snow, with with um, snow chains on my car to tell the people now sorry mother has retained the baby it must go back and the mother picked a sacred heart picture off the wall and danced on it glass and all you know the tragedy how, how many years was that baby with those people oh, nine months just nine months nine yeah. months well it's even nine days i know you know people who are longing for a baby then they find one and you know Reclaim. Yeah, there is a bond. Yeah. Now that was there. But I was com- coming back to Lucy. The first time I, I, I you know, proved to him, uh, to his satisfaction, that there was a fault in the, the law and more the administration. Now he said, very well, telephone the Minister for Justice and tell him I am coming to see him at 10 o'clock next Monday morning. Oh, he didn't ask for an appointment. <laughs> it was very funny. Mrs. Wren and myself and himself arrived and it was Everett, Labour Minister, 
uh, the late late fifties, I would think, and the minister was surrounded by his advisers and the most famous, the most famous secretary, Peter Berry, the man who was involved with the arms trial. But um, um, oh my goodness, yeah, yes, you remember the man, yeah, yeah, yeah. tremendous fellow. How did he get on at that meeting? Um, Very interesting. Um, Lucy made some opening statements of his problem. And the poor minister obviously didn't know much about it. And he said, look, Bishop, I don't think you know a great deal about adoption. I think you should really go and talk to Monsignor Barrett of Dublin. Well, Lucy exploded the one thing the minister should have said. Because Lucy couldn't stand Barrett or John Charles. Yeah. Lucy practically jumped out of the chair at him, you see. And I can still remember the minister. He was a bit deaf. He was keep the hand here. No, Bishop, he said, you go back to Cork and we'll do exactly what you want. <laughs> And so he came away getting his way. Yes, and then that formed a link with Peter Berry, yeah. the secretary, you know. Uh, he was a very powerful man. He, he was totally responsible for the administration of the adoption board. So any time we had a problem later on, we went straight to Berry. What about mixed marriages? How, how, how did that That was banned. Now, I, I would think that Lucy allowed that into the law to uh, soften up John Charles. Lucy was very strong against mixed marriages. And actually, it was many years later, 74, the Act of 74, allowed a mixed marriage to adopt. Well, you see, I suppose in a way at the time it was wise because if you had a mixed marriage, you'd have a row between the churches. Were you instrumental in, in that? In, in, uh, well, I encouraged it and so on. In fact, I had friends uh, where the wife lecturer in university, the, both of them were lecturers in the university, mixed marriage, and they couldn't adopt at all, you see. So I was able to tell them that the law was going to change approximately a certain date. They had their name in and they adopted four in a row, you know, when the law changed. But, uh, you know, the, the law did very well generally. It, it needed a lot of tidying up because, you see, they didn't know uh, how close to the Constitution they could go. And, in fact, there was one famous case uh, where the whole Adoption Act was struck down in that was uh, contrary to the Constitution, the imprescriptible rights of the family. Now, uh, a mother and unmarried father, they thought were quite safe, but uh, the, the whole Adoption Act was struck down and there had to be a referendum, I can't quite remember the year now, saying that in spite of what the Constitution said, adoption, legal adoption was possible. Mm. You know, but uh, for a while there were about, I think, how many thousand children were kind of hanging in the balance. Looking back at it now and seeing those days, oh, yeah. uh, d- did you think they were frightening? Uh, did you think that, the, in a way that you were doing great work, but did you yeah. think that the whole system was was, was, was frightening? What was frightening? Actually, recently now the nuns in Bestbrook Convent got a historian to write their history and they gave it to me to have a look at it. And it was frightening, the whole situation, the way unmarried girls were treated. They were banished straight. You know, and um, most girls in all the day, they found they were pregnant, head for England. And the English fellas had a whole lot of technical terms. The common one was PFI. She's a PFI, pregnant from Ireland. <laughs> you see? And this, this Canon Harvey, he was a cockney of grand old fellow. And, you know, I suppose didn't like all these fight. Westminster United had 500 Irish girls a year, steady dropping their babies on their doorstep, you see, on Harvey's doorstep. And he'd ring me up uh, late at night, and you see, English priests nearly always call themselves by their surname, you see, you know. Good. 
two bloody PFIs arrived on my doorstep this morning. <laughs> Can you handle them? <laughs> and another night then to me. Hi, good, hope you're well. Um, I have two, two babies here. We want to get them adopted fast. Can you take them tomorrow morning? <laughs> you see? And I said, okay, can we have the papers? We've gone through the very Yeah, we have two vacancies in the nursery. Come the following morning by air. Then that was the later years. Yeah. We started with the Innisfallon. Next, we moved to the Rosslair train, which was 10 past 10 in the morning, arriving in Cork, and then moved to Cork Airport. And that was a dreadful experience in the beginning because most of the aircraft in those days were diverted to Shannon, you see. I'd be up in Cork Airport, you had an announcement, sorry, aircraft diverted to Shannon. Off you go to Shannon, pick up the two the I two know. mothers. And in all that time, the, 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 the mothers and the babies waiting and... Uh, oh yeah, and, and to arrive, yeah. you see, they had a big uh, nursing home in in London. Harvey had done a great job actually, because the English bishops had organised orphanages for Irish, well, for kids generally, nearly all Irish kids, hundreds of them. And Harvey came in by accident, more or less. Somebody died, and somebody wasn't available, and Harvey was pushed in, and he said the whole idea of orphanages should be shut down, and he pushed hard on to uh, number one adoption and built a mighty... He's one big orphanage in the flight path for, for uh, Heathrow, mm-hmm. and he held on to it for a while, and then he sold to Heathrow for millions and set up a huge organisation for adoption and fosterage. Tremendous reorganisation, and all the other English dioceses uh, proceeded the same lines, get on to adoption, and as I said, Lucy came in just at the right time, yeah. and Lucy pushed the other bishops, and then you would several dioceses set up their own adoption societies then uh, dealing with any babies Irish or English but then of course gradually the numbers decreased and English babies started to stop coming to Ireland about 15 years ago no more available you've got contraception and abortion and then of course the state aid from married mothers whereby a mother gets support will get a home probably and income adequate to support herself and the baby so there is literally no adoption now in ireland it's uh, you know romania or uh, china or russia or anywhere like that but the whole adoption area was very happy you know and uh, i meet a lot of them now these days uh, you know and Oh, you gave me a baby 44 years ago and so on and one lovely i think it's a lovely story one of the um the earlier adoption was uh, identical twin girls. Uh, they were beautiful, absolutely. And uh, we placed them with a lovely family in Thurles. And uh, four years later, the adopting mother had her own baby, a boy. Four years later, she came back for another baby. And the twins were eight at the stage, you see. And they were gorgeous. And uh, a few months ago, one of the twins came to me here, age, I'd say, middle 40s, late 40s, and she said, uh, the two of us talked about this, and we don't want to hear anything about our parentage, but we would like to know, how do we arrive in Cork? <laughs> that was a very easy question to answer, of course, you see. <laughs> yeah. Art was very happy. I meet them everywhere now, and a few of the adopted children insisted on keeping in touch. This recording with Father James Good was made in 2009 at his home in Douglas, in Cork City. If you'd like the full interview, it's available on Irish Life and Lore. My name is Morris O'Keefe, and thank you for listening. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.